The scripture reading this morning is from Micah, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and it's on page 758 in your pew Bibles. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she is, who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. This is the word of God. I think it would be great whenever the scripture reader says this is the word of God to respond, thanks be to God. I know we're not a liturgical church, but that seems appropriate to say that. So we'll practice that more next week. Uh, Let's pray. Father, please take the loaves and fishes of this sermon and multiply it. Multiply them to feed your people and to give us exactly what we need. Amen. Some of you may know this, but up in Alberg, just a few miles from the Canadian border, there's a Vermont Welcome Center. And off to the side of the parking lot, there's a plaque which says, First Intercontinental Ballistic Missile Site East of the Mississippi River, built in 1960 to 1962 by the U.S. Air Force. Has anyone seen that? Yes. It's kind of cool to think right there in Alberg, there's this giant underground silo, um, which used to be armed or you know, equipped with a nuclear-armed missile in case of um, you know, probably Soviet uh, nuclear attack. It's kind of cool, but it's also kind of sad that we live in a world where there has to be a nuclear-tipped missile in a silo in a field in Vermont to keep us safe. The world is not a safe place. And I didn't, I didn't live through those days back in the Cold War, but many of you did. You probably remember waiting for those air raid sirens or alerts that would tell you to duck and cover in case of nuclear attack. Um, and thankfully, we don't have that particular threat over us at the moment But we do live in a world torn by hostility and hatred and violence and conflict on a a global international scale, but also on on a community and an individual scale. Peace is hard to come by in this world. If there is not outright violence, um, people are at each other's throats about masking policies and vaccines and politics and there's conflict in our families and in our homes and in our schools and our churches. There's political division. And yet, this 
passage tells us that we have a peace bringer. The last verse that was read said, He will be our peace. He will be our peace. Micah foretold this shepherd king who would bring peace to his people and actually peace to the whole world. And of course, he was talking about Jesus, the one who has peace that flows from within himself. And today, what I want to invite you to do is to to find peace in Jesus, to come to him for peace. Look to him for your safety, your security, um, your sense that everything is okay. That word peace in Hebrew is shalom, which is more than just the absence of fighting. It's like wholeness, completeness, things as they should be. So look to Jesus for that today. And Micah's prophecy about Jesus can tell us three reasons, I think, why we should trust Jesus for his peace. Uh, There are a couple big surprises along the way that I found, but I want you to come with me into this passage and see what these reasons are and, and trust Jesus for your peace. Well, the first reason is that we are desperate for peace. We're desperate for peace. And the context of this prophecy can help us understand that. Let me bring you into the story of what was happening in Jerusalem as Micah said these words. Okay, it's the spring of 701 B.C. We know this from other passages of Scripture and from um, Assyrian accounts of the same event. The air is warm. And as, as Micah speaks these words, the largest and most sophisticated army in the world is outside the walls of Jerusalem. They're laying siege to the city. They're, they're felling trees to construct giant wall-breaking battering rams with iron tips on long, on long uh, instruments. They, um, they are marshalling their troops to invade the city. Um, Je- Israelite archers are standing on the wall shooting flaming arrows down onto these wooden siege machines, and the fires are being doused by the Assyrian army. So you can smell the smell of burnt wood and smoke in the air. And maybe as someone is standing, I like to think Micah is standing like on the stone temple steps and he has a small crowd gathered around him on the pavement. And maybe they were even, even feeling the pavement tremble beneath their feet as these siege machines pounded the walls of their city. Micah had been prophesying that this day would come. Because he was a prophet who spoke truth. Jerusalem is being judged for her sins. Um, The leaders of of Israel were idol worshipers. The merchants were corrupt. The rich lived in luxury and um, forced the poor off of their land. Uh, Sometimes Micah used visual aids in his prophetic ministry to try to reach people. And we're told in chapter 2 that he walked around the city stripped naked, prophesying to, to show them what the, the city's rich and well-dressed people would look like when they were captured and carted off to, Jeru- to Babylon, humiliated, or to Assyria. 
Now, I don't think Micah was naked when he said these words, um, but there were plenty of false prophets for hire in Jerusalem who the wealthy would pay to tell them what they wanted to hear. And these false prophets had filled King Hezekiah's ears with promises that if he made alliances with other smaller nations around, he would be safe from the Assyrian threat, that they would be strong enough to push back this powerful army. And of course, those dreams are now up in smoke. There's no one there to help Jerusalem. The king has failed Look at verse 1. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. There's a literal siege laid against them. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Now, if someone gets hit on the cheek with a rod, what does that signify? Number one, that they're defenseless. Number two, that they're being humiliated. Right? This is Micah's way of saying, Our king has failed to keep us safe. Our leaders have failed and they are being humiliated and we are being besieged. The people of God were desperate for peace. And so are we. We don't have a foreign army on our border threatening to attack. Um, That could happen someday. But we do live in a world full of hostility and fear and danger, some far and some near. If you're a Christian, you do have literal enemies around the world who, who want you dead because you're a Christian or because you're a Westerner or because you're an American. But closer to home, we are also besieged by spiritual enemies that wage war against our soul by ideologies and evil powers and addictions and spiritual darkness. Do you ever feel that? The battle is real. The battle is real. We need peace from those things. We can't, and we can't help ourselves. That's my point. Just like Israel was desperate for peace and they were helpless to provide it, so are we. We can't protect ourselves from all those things. Um, But we do have a protector. We have a peace giver who who does what we can't do. And that person, Micah says next, is someone who is literally born for the job. So let's go to verse 2. Everything about him, including these unexpected origins that we see prove that he is the man for this job. Verse 2, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are of old from ancient times. We hear these words almost every Christmas in the book of Matthew where uh, King Herod asks the, the, the teachers of the law where the Messiah would be born, and they quote this passage. Well, Bethlehem, of course, they say, but Bethlehem was not an obvious choice for the Messiah, for his origins at the time of Micah. It was a small, insignificant village, probably had more sheep than people, no palaces, no fortresses, 
no temples, no institutions, nowhere that a king would, would come from. There was perhaps a small historical marker in, in Bethlehem that named its only claim to fame, which was birthplace of, do you know who? King David. King David was born in Bethlehem. And though the story quickly moves on from that, that's, that's where he came from. He went on to become the best and the most powerful king Israel ever had. And David became the pattern for the Messiah. David's name and reputation and his throne and everything he represents looms large in the Bible. If you go to BibleGateway.com and type in David to see how many occurrences of that word are in Scripture, you get 974 hits. And 920 of those are in the Old Testament. And, and 20 of those, at least, are explicit prophecies of the Messiah being like David and being on David's throne. So everybody knew the Messiah would be this new and greater David who would protect his people and bring peace. But what Micah is saying here is that the Messiah is not just like David in his power, in his glory, but also in his humble origins. And that he was handpicked for the job. That's what happened with David. Do you remember the story in 1 Samuel 16 where God tells the prophet Samuel to go to Jesse's house? He says, because I have chosen one of his sons to be king of Israel. So Samuel goes and tells Jesse and Jesse lines up seven of his sons, his oldest sons. And Samuel sees the first one, Eliab, and thinks, surely this is the one God has chosen. And God says, no, this isn't the one. And he goes on down the line, all of the seven oldest sons. And God says, no, this is not the one I have chosen. And then Jesse, uh, Samuel turns to Jesse and says, are these all of your sons? And he says, well, there is David, the youngest, but he's out in the fields with the sheep. Because Jesse hadn't, it hadn't even occurred to him that David would be the one that was chosen. He was an unexpected choice, a, a, an insignificant person who was a shepherd, you know, who's spending his days with animals out in the, in the pasture. But God had handpicked him to be the king of Israel. And in the same way, God has handpicked Jesus to be the Messiah we need. Everything about Jesus' origin story made it clear that God had handpicked him for the job. He wasn't born in a palace from these uh, you know, corrupt, wealthy kings of Judah. He was born in an obscure town, um, just like King David in ancient times. And he was born to poor parents who had come from an even more obscure town called Nazareth, just a rocky village uh, in the north of Israel. Um, and yet, he was handpicked for the job. And who were the first people the angels told that Jesus was born? Shepherds. Shepherds in the hillsides, around the hillsides of Bethlehem. Now today, the little town of Bethlehem is not so little anymore. It's a major stop for tourist buses 
uh, filled with people from all over the world to come and see where Jesus, the Messiah, was born. Just as an aside, it's pretty cool that Micah, Micah predicted that 750 years before Jesus was born there. Why does this matter for us? Why does it matter that Micah is showing the Messiah is handpicked for this job of being the Prince of Peace? Well, we need to remember that God's way of doing things is different than ours. He, he brought his, his handpicked Messiah from the humblest of origins just so that it would be clear that our salvation is from God and not from ourselves, not from human strength and power and prestige. Remember in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says God chose the, the weak things to despise the strong. He chose what is humble and, and not esteemed to, to despise the strong. And we are often tempted to forget this, Right? We look to the strong and powerful things in this world for a sense of safety. Strong locks, strong insurance, strong military, strong bank accounts, strong economy. But that's not the way God works. The, the peace that Jesus provides is so different from the, the types of things we look to for security that ultimately crumble and fail us. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He was literally born for the job. Well, finally, I want to show you how Jesus does what no one else can do to bring peace. Let's go on. We're going uh, to go down to verse 4. We'll circle back to verse 3. But verse 4 talks about the actions of this shepherd king. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. These are loaded predictions, aren't they? This shepherd king will act with God's very own strength and power, and he will keep his people completely safe. Remember, this was spoken to people who were, who were being besieged. And so, if you're standing there listening to this army try to break into your city, these are comforting words. This king will keep us safe. He'll keep us safe. And Micah says, the people under his reign will live securely. They'll have no need to fear. No international threats or internal divisions? How is this possible? He says the next phrase, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. So the reign of this king of peace is global. There's no political borders where you can cross and end up in enemy territory. There's no hideouts where enemies are waiting and gathering strength. There's it's a completely safe world. Um, within his kingdom, there will be no factions or opposition to his perfect reign of peace. Just imagine that. 
that is so far from the world we inhabit now, it's hard to imagine. But this is what Jesus will do. But here's the big surprise. Here's the big surprise. Jesus accomplishes, I should say, Jesus is accomplishing this peace in a way that Micah or no one else could have expected. Look back to verse 3, and we'll, we'll trace this out from, from verse 3. Therefore, it says, therefore Israel will be abandoned. Wait a minute, Micah, I thought this was good news. Are you standing there? Here's this Prince of Peace, he's coming. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned. Wait, what? We're going to, another translation is, is God will give them over to their enemies. They're going to be plundered. They're going to be exiled. How is that good news? Well, therefore, it will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. So, as a matter of fact, Assyria's siege of Jerusalem in 701 B.C. failed due to supernatural intervention from God, as if God is giving them another chance to return and repent. And yet, um, the words of Micah show there will be a delay, a long delay perhaps, between his words and the fulfillment of this prophecy. So Micah talks about a time when she who is in labor bears a son. In context, he's talking about she being the community of Israel, bearing a son, this Savior, and then the rest of his brothers, that is, Israelites, will return to join the family. Because remember, the kingdom was divided. Some Israelites had already been taken to captivity in, in Assyria. And so there's going to be this reunification of the nation when people come back together, when hearts return to God, and when Israel is whole again. And the surprising thing is, that never happened. Does that mean Micah is a false prophet? That it never happened, and it never can happen, because um, a lot of the tribes of Israel were, were lost. Their people never came back to the, to the land of Israel. There was never this reunification. Even when the, nation, the current nation of Israel became a nation in 1948, um, there were lots of Jewish people living all over the world, scattered. So this has never actually happened. But the amazing thing is that these words are being fulfilled even now in a much greater way than, than Micah thought. I'm sure, I'm sure if Micah was alive today, his jaw would hit the floor when he read the rest of the Bible and to see what God has done to fulfill this. How did, how did Jesus fulfill this prophecy? Well, Mary was in labor and bore a son. They named him Jesus, which means um, God will, will save his people. Uh, he grew up, Jesus grew up to call himself both a king and a shepherd. Right? I'm the good shepherd. And he said he brought the kingdom of God 
near. Track with me on this. But his own people did not recognize him. Right? He experienced hostility and rejection and violence. Like, he experienced all that in himself. All of the the evil stuff that he came to save us from, he bore the brunt of it. His own people handed him over to the Romans to do the dirty work of killing him because they hated him. What kind of a Messiah is that? But, but here's, the, here's where the light comes on and where, where we see what's really happening because Paul says that on the cross, Jesus made peace. That's where he became the prince of peace. He writes in Ephesians chapter 2 that Jesus defeated a much greater enemy than the Assyrians or the Babylonians or any, any enemy out there, any earthly power, but he destroyed the enemies of sin and death. He destroyed the the actual greatest enemy that causes divisions and conflict and violence and lack of peace. He was a king who died not to... He was a king who didn't come to obliterate his enemies, but he died for them, to forgive them. In Ephesians 2.14, Paul quotes part of this prophecy from Micah. Listen. For he himself is our peace. That's what Micah said. He will be our peace. Paul says, He himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. The two groups he's talking about are the Jews and the Gentiles, people who are not Jews. So God's people and everyone else, that includes the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans, everyone else who were Israel's enemies. Paul goes on, Jesus' purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace in his body, uh, reconciling both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Do you see what, what Paul is saying that Jesus solved the real problem of what creates division and hostility and war. People need peace with God to have peace with one another. People need their sins forgiven and their hearts changed to be able to have peace with each other. And Jesus is the only one offered, offering to do this and the only one who can do it. And he is still doing it today. Almost anywhere you go in the world, you will find little communities of people who follow Jesus made up of friends who used to be enemies. You'll find Israelis and Palestinians worshiping together. You'll find Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. You'll find Americans and Russians worshiping together. Jesus has destroyed the power that keeps us hostile. Jesus has turned enemies into brothers, into his brothers and brothers with one another. And you know what? Jesus 
is here right now. This one that's prophesied about is here with us now, today, by His Spirit. And He is holding out His hands to you and offering you His peace and saying, come to me. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. I am the the prince of peace. Whatever sins that have come between you and God, he can forgive. Whatever hostility is between you and someone else, he can heal. Whoever your enemy is, he has made reconciliation possible. So receive the peace that he has. Now, when Jesus returns, he's going to finish fulfilling this prophecy. He's going to come with power to subdue his enemies and to make this world a perfectly safe place for his people. There will be no more nuclear missile silos, no more political parties, no more threats, no more sieges. And if you belong to him, that's a day you can look forward to. Let's pray. Lord, we are people who need peace. And we thank you that you have provided it, not in the ways we expect sometimes. Uh, It's sort of a mystery how this world can be filled with conflict and yet filled with the peace of Christ at the same time. Help us to choose peace in Christ. Help us, to, um, help us to be people who are at peace with one another and with those who used to be our enemies. And Lord, bring, bring peace to our troubled souls and minds. And thank you that we, we live, that if we believe in you, we are under your rule and your reign, which is an ever-increasing shalom. In your name we pray, amen.